0: Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians 6. We're, uh, of course, studying the Catholic epistles this this year, but we're taking a little side roads to look at these key areas of life where uh, being a Christian man makes a real difference, or ought to make a difference, and trying to, to, to look at these realms of our lives uh, in, in more detail. Uh, last time we looked at marriage, which, of course... Uh, affects all of us whether we're married or single because uh, we uh, want to encourage everyone who is married to uh, live in that marriage as a godly husband. Today we want to just keep reading in that household ethic that Paul describes in Ephesians 5 and come to Ephesians 6 in the first four verses. We're just going to spend our time looking at four verses today on uh, being a Christian father, Christian parent, and those of you who are not fathers, uh, this is very important for us because uh, in these instructions, we'll find some uh, paradigmatic teaching for how we as men ought to lead in every realm. I think it'll affect the way that you lead in your business, in your profession. It'll lead the way, uh, it'll it'll, uh, guide the way that we lead in mentoring relationships, Uh, with uh, younger men so I think there are a lot of principles here that apply to us even who are not parents Uh, but secondly if we happen to be a single man today or a a man without children uh, it's very important that all of us in the community be thinking about this next generation and uh, fathering is so important we need to be able to know how to encourage one another in being good parents so this is important for all of us for many, many different reasons. Well, let's take a look at Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and then spend a few moments talking about it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not exasper, or do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I remember uh, some years ago, I saw a cartoon, I think it was in New York Magazine, and it was a kid who was showing his report card to his dad, and his dad had his glasses down the end of his nose looking at it, he said, five F's, what's that all about? And the boy said, yeah, dad, what do you think it is, hereditary, heredity or nature, Uh, or hereditary environment? And, uh, you know, that's the way... uh, Children are sometimes. It can drive you nuts. Uh, And sometimes we don't know whether it is heredity or environment, but we need to figure out what it is for us as parents. Uh, Paul teaches this this subject, which is of great importance to us all, uh, and we know that in our society that it's very, very important that fathers be doing their job. I can't think of any more important, uh, influential position in any culture than this one, and it's certainly true in the church. Uh, We saw last time how husbands are to be pastors to their wives. Husbands care for a vineyard, uh, a garden, and shepherds care for sheep. So it's the same phenomenon. And likewise with children. We're pastoring children. The word nourish is used for both. The word bring them up is the word nourish. And also Paul uses the word nourish for men who are caring for their wives. He said, you nourish and feed your own body, Will you nourish and feed your wife. So we're nourishing, we're strengthening everybody around us. And it seems to me that the man's role is to give himself away as a servant to those who are closest to him especially. So let's take a look at this. First of all, we're going to see how important it is that our children must obey their parents. Our children must obey their parents. You get this also, the same sort of teaching in Colossians. There's a parallel text there. But how important it is for us to teach our children to obey authority. And that takes some effort. It takes effort because you have to stay on top of things. It takes on effort, effort because you have to confront. It takes effort because you make some people unhappy in the short run. But boy, does it ever pay dividends when you teach your children to obey authority. Uh, When you look at the Ten Commandments, you have uh, at least the Protestant version of this division is that the first four commandments are on what we call the first tablet of the law having to do with our relationship with God. Uh, That we have no other gods before us, that we make no graven image, we don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and that we keep the Sabbath holy. Those have to do with our relationship with God. Second Tablet of the Ten Commandments has to do with our relationship with human beings. And you would expect that we're going to start, first rule, don't kill each other. Okay? You'd expect a Commandment 5 to be just minimally don't kill everybody or anybody. Then you can go from there. Don't steal, don't lie against each other, and all this kind of thing. No, that's not the way it goes. Fifth Commandment, uh, (laughs) honor your parents. Obey your parents. And why is that? Because the most fundamental thing in horizontal relationships, that is with fellow human beings, is be sure that we know how to submit to authority. Because if you don't, you will be killing each other. There will be complete chaos and disorder. So it's very interesting to me that the, the first commandment that has to do with loving your neighbors yourself has to do with obeying your parents, which is the fundamental law, for how we are to obey all civil authorities. And we've seen it here, of course, from a number of texts, including First Peter, how we are to learn to obey the civil authorities, how we're to obey church authorities, how we're to obey all the authorities that are God-ordained in our lives. So it begins here in the home. And if children are not taught to respond appropriately to authority in the home, then they will not be responding properly to authority in the schools or uh, to the police or to anybody else who should be in authority. First of all, Paul says that we do this because it is right. Obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. And the word there is or just the same word from which you'll get sune, which is the word for righteousness. So, decaosune is righteousness, and this word is right. It's It's according to goodness, it's according to the revealed will of God. It is right to do that. That's the first reason we do it. Whether we can explain how important it is for society or not. It's what God wants. Well, let's let God determine what He wants. He wants that. It's pleasing to Him, and it is right. You'll notice that the apostle says, Obey your parents in the Lord. So like every other obedience, it is in the Lord. So if I'm 18 years old, and... Uh, my parents tell me to go rob a bank. I have to be willing not to rob the bank and get kicked out of the house. So it's still in the Lord. Now, the younger the children are, they've not yet been developed to the point that they know how to uh, resist the authority of their parents. But as they get older, they obey in the Lord. Uh, I always tell college students this would be the most uh, confusing time when you're up and out of the house, and yet you're still a minor, uh, that you are to obey your parents in the Lord. And so what does that mean? You know, anytime that you're on their support, you know, either living under their roof or living on their support, you should obey your parents in the Lord. In college now, uh, for a number of years, uh, the transcripts, and the grades, have not been sent to the parents. They only, only get sent to the kids. That's typical in most colleges and universities now, recognizing the privacy of the student. Well, I'm saying, but you're not recognizing Ephesians 6.1, that parents are responsible for their children as long as they're under our care, under our roof, they're under our authority. So when they get to be 18, you know, we have five children, especially with with the boys. When they get to be 18, you can say to them, look, you can make up your own rules. You can you can establish your own household anytime you want to. I hope you'll stay in this one. We enjoy having you, and you know it's cheaper for you. And you'll probably do better if you do that. But if you want to set up a new set of rules, uh, you know you're you're a young man. You can do it. So if a child wants to declare his independence, fine. But if he's if he's under the support of the family and under the 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 roof, then there should be obedience in the Lord. Uh, I've often said to college students uh, who sometimes. You know, in our campus outreach ministry, I mean, this semester we, we were told last week, so far we've had about 100 conversions on all of our campuses where we work, which is absolutely wonderful. We usually end up with about 250 or so college conversions each year. But uh, so we've got all these conversions, and typically a college student will ask, you know, how do I testify to my parents? You know, I've met the Lord, I, I want my parents to know. But, of course, that gets real dicey, doesn't it? Because parents... You know, typically in their ego, they don't like their children telling them about what their spiritual principles ought to be. So these children can feel that, and they're saying, what do I do? Here's what I usually tell them. Say, you know what? Just wait for your opportunity, but wait prayerfully. Pray for your parents. Secondly, the number one way in which you can show them that something dramatic has happened in your life, go home and obey your parents. (laughs) I said, you probably haven't been doing a real good job of that. (laughs) So you will shock the socks off your parents if you go home and actually obey them and you do that cheerfully. And you know what? I've noticed with kids that age, when they get converted, that's one of the number one ways you can see the difference. And it's just, it's like overnight. Uh, It's like I tell uh, graduating high school seniors, when you go to college, at college, Your number one way of testifying is through your sex life. They say, huh? say, yeah. Everybody on the third date, they're rolling around in between the sheets. You know, by the time you're on the third date, you're obligated, right? That's the way everybody thinks. You're not going to be that way. You're going to live out a biblical sexuality and all your friends are going to think you're weird. So then they're going to ask you, why don't you all sleep together? And there's only one answer to that. His name is Jesus. You're in love with him. So these these... Ways in which we, our lives are transformed uh, are the number one platform for how we're going to share the gospel. With you in the workplace, with, with me in the community, when we're kind to people, when we really take up their interests, uh, when we go the extra mile. You know, Tim Keller tells a story of a woman who visited his church, and the reason she did so is because her boss had protected her when she made a huge mistake And he he got her back. And she came in and demanded to know why he did that. Nobody in New York does that, she said. Why did you do that? And he said, well, I have a Savior who gave up his life for me. And it just seems to me that the least I can do is try to imitate him with other people. She said, where do you go to church? (laughs) So that's how she ended up at their church. It, it It makes a huge difference. Here it is. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, notice it's children, it's minors. When you get to the point that you're up and out of the house, brothers, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And some of you, I need to stress this this morning because some of your wives are wondering if you ever really left home, you know? Sometimes the way you make decisions, the w- where you get your chief advice, you're more influenced by your your daddy than you are your Wife and what she thinks you've got to watch out for that now, my dad was advisor to me and and I'm sure you all are advisor to your kids too, uh, and that's a great thing. but when you get married, you don't obey your parents, you do the next word, you honor them. so we always honor our parents, but we don't always do what they say when we reach majority because we have other commitments that then trump the commitment to parents so We've now taken a vow to our wives. You never took a vow to your parents. If you're a Presbyterian, your parents took a vow for you, but you didn't take a vow to them, but you take a vow to the wife. So notice here it has to do with minors. And uh, we, we also, before we leave that issue with young children, I think it's important for uh, dads to insist with our children that they obey their mother. And sometimes I think we're not as diligent on that as as we ought to be. Now, mothers, you know, they're perfectly capable normally of taking up for themselves. But our children need to know that we have respect for her authority. And we expect them to have respect for her authority. And I think that's one thing that men can do is be sure that the house has that order in it and that our wives have our blessing and the blessing of whatever authority we bring to the family. Uh, Sometimes uh, dads will wonder what should I do when my wife and I disagree on how to manage the children, how to discipline them. Well, when they're younger especially, to the best of our ability, we go off on the side and we talk these things through. And gentlemen, I know we all probably have strong feelings about how we uh, discipline our children. But, you know, to the best of your ability and mine, we've got to figure out how to do this in such a way that we're representing our wife's interests as well as our own. And she's representing our, inter- our interests as well as her own. And so that takes a lot of conversation. Uh, I've told, told folks before, Allison and I are very different on most things, including this issue. And it just requires a lot of conversations, a lot of negotiations, a lot of compromise to figure out how we're gonna go in the same direction together. And normally you'd like to avoid your disputes you in front of the children. But you know what, as children have gotten older, certainly when they get into their teen years, Uh, The differences between my wife and myself are so obvious. You know, any sentient adult uh, who's in the home would be able to pick that up. So, you know, without uh, quibbling or arguing, we have discussions in front of our children at times. When the children really got older, like when my, I can remember when my daughter was 16 or 17, and she would come in and say, Dad, Mom won't let me do this. And she'd look at me and she'd say, and I know you don't agree with that. And i just sit there listening to her. And I just would say, honey, whether I agree or disagree is irrelevant. Um, what's relevant is you need to work this out with your mom. And you need to respect and obey whatever she says, regardless of what the outcome is. That's what you need to do. So I found she was right, of course. Uh, she's, these little women are very intuitive. So she was right. I did not agree. I was more permissive than my wife. Uh, so, and my, my daughter was sharp enough to pick up on that. but uh, So at that age, what's the use of saying, oh, no, we agree on it. No, we, we don't agree on everything. But just coach her in how to be an obedient child. And, 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 of course, we talked about this very text. We've got to be obedient in the Lord. It's for His honor and glory. So whatever you do, not only obey, but obey with a big smile on your heart and on your face and be willing to take no for an answer. Sometimes with kids, especially teenagers, when they ask you a tough question, can I stay out, you know, uh, past midnight on Friday night? Uh, before I even begin the discussion, sometimes I'm smart enough to say, "Well, let's talk about this, but before we come to a conclusion, uh, are you willing to take no for an answer?" Uh, and I want them to answer that first. Let's get let's let's deal with first things first because it's in their interest that I do that. I want them to go through the thought process of being submissive and obedient, regardless of how persuasive their arguments may be. And I think that's important for our children. Are you willing to take no for an answer? Are you willing to take yes for an answer? Are you going to be cheerful regardless of the outcome? Uh, It's a really important principle. And, of course, the ultimate reason for all this is that how in the world are these kids going to respond to God? If you talk about authority, there's authority with a capital A all the time in their lives. And God says no sometimes. And we have to be cheerfully obedient to Him in every circumstance. Uh, Things that are written in His Word and providences that come to us in our lives. We have to be submissive to His Word and to His providence. So this training is extremely important for our children and grandchildren. But then notice for all of us, whether children or adult children, minor children or adult children, uh, we honor our father and mother. And the Apostle says, This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And of course, in the Old Testament, that land was the promised land. So you know that in Deuteronomy, for example, Moses is giving the children of God a warning. We're going to go into this land of Canaan. And if you obey the Lord, He will maintain you there. He will sustain you there. If you disobey Him, He'll spew you out like vomit. He will thrust you out of the land. And so here is the promise. If you'll obey your parents in the Lord, then you will live long in the land that I'm giving you. Now the way in which I think that translates to us is that if our children learn to obey their parents, they will enjoy God's blessing all their lives. And that's one reason why it's a gift from us to teach them how to obey. Uh, so this is the only one of the Ten Commandments, strictly speaking, that has a promise attached to it. Some of them, some of the commandments, as you know, have reasons attached to them, but this one has a promise uh, attached to it. And um, uh, and obviously, it's extremely important. I, I mentioned this Mark seven passage, but. Four or five times, Jesus mentions this particular commandment in the Gospels. So whenever he speaks of the commandments, it seems he always mentions this one. Remember when the rich young ruler comes up and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, you know, keep the commandments. And he, he lists them, and th- this is right there, honor your parents. And, of course, the rich young ruler foolishly says, I've kept all these things since my youth. Okay, let's look at the next verse Uh, verse 4. Here, uh, we want to spend the rest of our time. This is an amazingly important verse for all of us as fathers, grandfathers, and leaders. Fathers must rear their children. Fathers. Now, isn't it interesting that uh, he mentions fathers in particular? We all know how important mothers are. In fact, I saw an article decades ago. I can't remember what year it was. Probably back in the 80s. I still remember this article. In the New York Times, it was an article by a, a, a man who showed that with some of our most amazing leaders in our history, the one thing that all had in common was a fabulous mother. You would expect that it would have been great fathers, but it was the mother. And so, I, as I've thought about it... and, and meditated on that for several years I noticed that it's the mother in a lot of ways that really builds her son up and shows him how great he is how wonderful he is builds confidence in him but on the other hand we as men are all aware that uh, there's really only one person psychologically, normally that can do the deepest validation of any young man and that's his dad Uh, you can get approval for your mother but it does not have the same impact as when you get approval and affirmation from your dad. The father seems to have the chief role and the most power in validating the very existence and meaning of a son's life. And some of you in this room would say, yeah, wish my dad had done that for me. And that's just what I'm talking about. Uh, normally with men, that big hole that we talk about in the male life, that commonly comes from... a, a somewhat dysfunctional relationship with your father where he never knew how to tell you he loved you, never told you he was proud of you. You just didn't have that sense of affirmation all through life. And as most people will teach us, nobody can do that like the father can. Nobody can replace the father in doing that. Others can help. Coaches help. High school teachers help. Uh, other male mentors help. Uh, and that's all important. But it's the father who is really key in this whole matter. So here he points out the fathers. Now notice the first instruction. Do not provoke them. I remember my son David, uh, my, my basketball coach son, when he was about five, he asked to lead in devotion, family devotions one night. And normally I didn't allow it because it was the one time of the day when Papa takes the book opens the book and reads it himself and leads the family in worship. So, just like I don't ask you to preach on Sunday morning, I don't ask my kids to preach on Monday night. But on this occasion, I allowed David to do it. I don't remember why. He selected this text. (laughs) (sighs) And then he started preaching on it. And he said... Daddies should not kill their children. I thought that was just outstanding advice because there were moments when I was sorely tempted. Fathers, do not provoke them to anger. Do not exasperate them. But the word here, provoke them to anger, really is the word for anger. It's, a, it's, a, it's the same word that's used earlier in Ephesians for Not allowing the sun to go down on your anger. And this is a word in the same family of words. Don't provoke them to anger. And why is that? Well, because anger that's misdirected, and it usually is, is very dangerous. It's very destructive. And in fact, the first one it destroys is the one who's angry. It eats up his soul. So if we are angering our children unnecessarily if they're living in an environment of anger it's self-destructive and I suggest you can just look at our culture right now and you've got a lot of angry children angry daughters who are 50 years old still mad at their dad and living out a philosophy in reaction to their dad I mean it's all over the place you see it the same way with the men you can have 60-year-old men acting out a philosophy of life because they're angry at their father. I, I remember talking to a guy dying of cancer in the hospital. He was, about, he was in his upper 40s. So he had an early case of cancer. He was dying. He didn't know the Lord. And uh, I shared the gospel with him and said, what would keep you from giving your life to Christ right now? And he said, let me tell you about my dad. And he told me the story about how his dad was a doctor Worked until 9 o'clock every night. Rarely saw his son. Didn't spend any time with him. Basically just abandoned him. This kid had been angry all his life. And he was so angry, he was not about to receive the same God as his God, who was the God of his father. That's the last God he was going to accept. And I just I remember seeing in living color right there years ago, boy, how important it is that our children love the God that we're worshiping because they can see the effect that God has had upon our lives and what benefit it's been for them. And they're grateful and they want to know the same God. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them to anger. And another reason why Paul's addressing that is not just because it's so important that our children not be eaten up with resentment and anger, but it's because the fathers are usually the ones that provoke it. Think about it. Think about the anger problems that so many of us wrestle with. And I put myself in that boat too. I have to control my own anger. We have testosterone. We're the ones who are supposed to go out and beat snakes, you know, and defend our families. And that takes a certain level of righteous indignation at times to do that. So we need anger in order to do our jobs. And when that anger gets out of control, it's very destructive to people around us. Now, notice that the Apostle Paul, when he's giving instructions in 1 Timothy and in Titus for elders and deacons, he specifically says they should manage their household well. Because a man will come into any environment where he's supposed to be nurturing people and caring for people, and he'll deal with them the same way fundamentally that he does his family. If you're in in spiritual leadership you will deal spiritually with the people around you, ultimately the way you deal with your wife and with your children. So if you're supposed to be nourishing at home, that's the number one laboratory that, where you work out your fatherly instincts. And then you go into society and you give those gifts to other people who are not in your immediate family. Paul, That's the reason Paul was so careful to say, don't take a man who doesn't prove himself in those closest relationships. So... Here it is, we're supposed to be controlling our anger so that we don't provoke the anger of our own children or provoke the depression of our wives. And I see it over and over again. I think one of the number one problems among men is not getting control of their anger. And they're used to the locker room chats they have with each other. You know, you can throw stuff, you can say words, you can, you can get really heated, you know, and passionate. And they think they can go home and do that with their wives. And wives have different antennae. They receive those messages very differently. When your face gets red and your veins are bulging out, that's enormously intimidating. And it's very destructive in your conversation with your wife. And I've had some young men, it takes them sometimes years to to realize they've got to change the modality in which they have conversations. You must calm yourself down and become reasonable. Uh, I'm sure that those of you in the uh, counseling business or in the psychology business would show us why our brains don't work properly when we're angry. So when you're afraid or when you're angry, you actually can't think straight. And so when you get yourself all angry and let yourself get worked up into a fit, you're not even thinking straight. You become very self-centered, very narcissistic, very unreasonable. You think you're being very reasonable, and you're very upset about other people who are unreasonable. Actually, just the opposite is the case. So in order not to provoke our children to anger the first thing we have to do is get control of our own anger and if it's something that you really are having difficulty with i suggest you you use uh, the counseling that's available at christian psychological center or some other place and let let the therapist help you identify what's actually going on why is it you're getting so angry and it probably is attached frankly to some issues in your own background with your own parents Because anger, it's it's almost like alcoholism. uh, In alcoholic uh, lives, you usually will be able to chart out a family tree of dysfunction that's related to that alcoholism. Those of you who who are recovering alcoholics, you know what I'm talking about. There's a whole family tree of dysfunction, and you're in it. Anger is the same way. It it creates a family tree of uh, uncontrolled anger. And you just need to know that, that if if you grew up in a family like I did, where there were inappropriate expressions of anger, that's the way you learn to communicate. And you've got to get outside of that dysfunctional family environment where you learned how to communicate and how to disagree with people. Get out of that and begin to look back into it. That's what a wise man can do. He can almost get out of his own skin and look at himself more objectively. And one of the keys to effectiveness is to be brutally honest with yourself. Who would want to argue with you uh, the way that you argue? You know, when you run other people down or you try to humiliate them or, you know, in order to win your argument and where you're more interested in winning than you are in coming to a godly conclusion. If you want to come to a godly conclusion, normally everybody in the group has to learn from each other, including the CEO. So everybody's got to come to the table ready to listen to another and you can't do that when you're boiling over with anger. Fathers... Fathers, you must not provoke your children to anger. Well, how do we provoke our children to anger? Well, we mentioned mentioned the first one. That's uncontrolled anger. The first thing to deal with if you want to pass on a legacy of love and peace and joy to your children is deal with yourself. Because all of your parenting uh, basically is intuitive. Uh, You're parenting in some ways the way you were parented. And obviously, there are some ways in which you're intentionally reversing some things in your life. You're, you know, when you're 18, you said, I'll never treat my children that way. Okay, great. You got that lesson. But then there are three others you never thought about, and you're just passing it right on down. So we have to, we have to, to learn about ourselves and control every temper, but certainly anger. Secondly, unkindness to your wife. This provokes children as much as anything I can think of. This is the fundamental relationship in the house. It's the father and the mother. That sets the emotional, relational uh, framework uh, for the whole home. And so when you're dealing kindly with your wife, what you have to realize is you're not just ministering to her, you're ministering to all your children who are watching you. Even if they're not watching you in that moment, she walks out of that conversation she's been dealt with tenderly lovingly respectfully and she's just kind of walking on air and believe me the children benefit from there from that if she walks out of that conversation with you and she's defeated and she's humiliated she's short tempered with the children uh, i'm just saying to you this relationship between you and your wife sets the temperature for everything in the family and you know what when your kids get to be adults they still love to see mom and dad hold their hands Hold each other's hands. Be kind and affectionate toward one another. It still sets the atmosphere for the entire family. Do you want to bless your whole family? Everyone who's got your last name, you want them to be a blessed family? Take care of your wife. Love her. Be tender with her. There's some great examples in this very room that I'd love to point out if I wouldn't embarrass them. But this is the way not to provoke your children is to be kind to your wife. Another way in which we provoke our children is obviously through abandonment. And you can abandon physically, but you can also abandon emotionally. So when you pull away emotionally, you kind of just had it. Uh, you, you're, you're tired of investing yourself in the family. And one reason that you're a workaholic is you, know, you have a number of ways of ju- justifying it. You're providing for the family. The work needs you. The thing will collapse without you. All the good reasons that we can give for being workaholics. Uh, basically what it often is, it's a way of having to avoid or being able to avoid some of the difficult relational issues in your life. It lifts you out of the family. It lifts you out of the problems of the family so you can justify being in an environment where you, you actually are happier. So a lot of people are workaholics because they're actually happier in the office than they are at home. But when you do that, just like my, my friend I was trying to evangelize in the hospital unsuccessfully, by the way, as far as I know, um, his, his father had far more power over him than I could ever have. Because he abandoned his son. And he put food on the table. He was a doctor. He sent his son to college. He did, he did everything money can do, except he didn't give himself. And so when we pull away relationally from kids, it provokes profound anger. They don't even know what the anger is. They can't put their finger on it. But you can just see it in their eyes. Uh, you, you know, a youth, a youth group leader who's experienced can usually in about 10 minutes Uh, Spending time with a kid in 10 minutes, they probably don't need 10 minutes, but certainly within 10 minutes, they can tell whether that child's been physically abandoned, uh, uh, emotionally abandoned or not. The the kid's demeanor, everything about them is reflected in whether their parents have invested in them. So when we don't invest in them, we pull away in one way or another, uh, we tend to provoke anger and discouragement. If you go down to the, the jail or if you go to a prison and you have an opportunity to do a Bible study. Uh, you, you can ask the people who are there, the inmates, how many of you grew up without a dad? 90% of the hands will go up. Okay? It's the most common denominator in, uh, among our incarcerated citizens is that their fathers abandon them. So physical abandonment and spiritual or emotional abandonment is a major offense to the next generation. And guys, I understand uh, it's so difficult to stay in a marriage where it's so deeply troubled. And there are occasions when we're given biblical grounds for divorce. But if you don't have clear biblical grounds for divorce, you not only stay in the marriage, you give yourself and your effort to that marriage to make it as healthy as you can make it. Remember, it's not about you. It's more about those kids. When I'm talking with a couple whose marriage is in trouble, honestly. I love them and I'd love for them to have a happy life. But I feel like here's a 65 year old man who's pleading with these two adults on behalf of some young children. And I feel like I'm, I'm the one who's pleading on behalf of the children for these parents to learn how to love each other and love their kids. So in marital counseling, honest, honestly, I feel like I'm an advocate for children more than anything. But the ultimate goal, of course, is to glorify God in our households. So we'll get to that in a moment and in some other ways. Uh, fourthly, we provoke our children to anger with excessive criticism. Uh, remember, uh, I've mentioned this to you before, the healthy balance of encouragement to criticism, psychologists tell us, is about seven to one. So seven words of encouragement for every word of correction. And when I, when I say that, most dads go, oh, my goodness, i got some work to do. I've got teenagers. Yeah, I know. And with teenagers, sometimes you're thinking, what do, you, what do you say? I mean, I could say a lie, you know, but what do you say true about these people that's positive, you know? It's like looking for a needle in the haystack. I say, yeah, get down on your knees and you find those needles because they're in there. But you, you hunt around till you find seven needles, you know, to encourage that person before you give a word of correction. They're human beings. They're made in the image of God. There are many things you can command. And if you can't think of anything nice to say about your own child, ask your best friend. They probably love your kids and see all kinds of things in them. And sometimes you need to hear from other people about uh, about the uh, virtues uh, and commendable items in your own kids. Now, this affects all of our leadership. When I was in China just last month and I was teaching on spiritual leadership uh, week I just mentioned this concept in passing, that uh, as leaders, when we're spiritually correcting, we have to remember that we should be encouraging at the rate of seven to one. That was just a passing comment over about um, maybe 12 hours of lectures, okay? I didn't spend any more time on it than I just did with you. At the end of our time there, they were sharing what they had learned. There were about 150 uh, men. They were sharing what they had learned, and about half of them who shared mention the seven-to-one concept. And they say, we're not doing anything close to that in our spiritual leadership. You know, when you, when you, when you believe something like Christians do, you, you, you're doing this all the time. And it, the, your environment becomes moralistic instead of gracious. And we've got to be sure that all the training we're doing is in a gracious environment. Otherwise, it provokes our kids to anger. And usually, they don't want anything to do with that. Fifthly, if we're withholding affection and affirmation. I've said to you before that our sons get their validation primarily from their father. And how many times have we seen uh, people who are just striving for success and when they're explaining to you uh, why they're doing what they're doing, they're saying, my dad never told me I was good enough. And every time I came home with a report card with four A's and a B. He would say, what's wrong with the B? Where, how'd you get the B? <laughs> just skip the four A's. Didn't say a word about them. Just noticed the B. And so they strive all their life to make straight A's and everything. Neurotically, that's a form of anger. And uh, we provoke them by excessive criticism and withholding, affection, and affirmation. Let me speak about the daughters for just a moment. Um, we validate our sons, but... We are extremely important to our daughters. Uh, Our daughters learn how they're to be treated by men from us. Uh, I'll never forget when I picked up my daughter when she was in the first grade to take her out to lunch. And she took a special little set of clothes with her in her satchel so that before I came to pick her up, she went to the little girl's restroom and she put on her dress. And she was ready to go out. So I'd go get her, and we go out to the car, and i open the door for her and put her in her. That was back in the days when six-year-olds could sit in the front seat without a car seat. You know, put her in the front seat, close the door, and i go around to the other side. i sit down and i say, okay, sweetie, where would you like to go for lunch? She said, the club, please. <laughs> and so we went to the club. This was at Le- when I was passing the Le- lookout mountain. We went to the uh, Fairland Club, and there we were on the top of the mountain at the picture window overlooking the valley. And she was in her high back wicker chair like a little queen or a little princess eating her ice cream for dessert. I'll never forget that. And gentlemen, you have the opportunity to teach your girls how men should be treating them. And so when some knucklehead comes along 20 years later, and thinks he wants to uh, take her out or treat her in some way that's not appropriate, she can see that's a counterfeit from the very beginning. That's not the way men treat women when they love them. When men love them, they treat them the way my daddy treats me. And that sense of being protected and valued. See, the son gets his respect from you. The daughter gets her value. She's valued. She's cherished. She's loved. And you know what I find out, to my great joy, that even adult daughters still appreciate Papa showing them that they're really important and that he loves them. Um, this relationship with daughters is extremely important. If you don't do that, if you withhold that kind of affection, for whatever reason, I know, uh, based on our own background, some of us have a really hard time expressing affection. I understand that. Just... Figure out, if that's true with you, figure out some concrete ways in which you can try to bust through and show affection in some way that feels more natural to you. But find ways to do that uh, so that they know they're valued. Uh, We also provoke our children by unfairness and favoritism. We We provoke them also with arbitrariness. And this arbitrariness is very important. When you are the father... And if your wife has agreed to submit to your leadership, your children are dependents upon you, it's very easy to abuse your authority and just to call the shots and just to do it your way because you're the king of the castle. When you do that, then the ways in which you rear your family become arbitrary because they're just based on your selfish desires. And when there's no reason explainable reason for what you're doing It's it provokes anger and resentment in your children they know you're being intensely selfish now earlier on they won't be able to put the words to it but by the time they're 14 they know that you're being intensely selfish and they resent that because what does that mean that means that you don't love them you love yourself so in order to avoid that you you need to be be, be able to give reasonable explanations to your children about why we're doing what we're doing. Explain things. You're not being arbitrary. You are submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when they see you submitting and that your rule in the family is based upon submission, you're you're seeking to please the Lord. You may be wrong, but you're trying to please the Lord. Your kids can see that. You're not being arbitrary. You're a man under orders. And when they see you under orders, they're much more likely to want to come under your order. So, arbitrariness or eighthly, unreasonable demands and expectations. Now, let's take the last few minutes to talk about uh, the latter part of that verse. Bring them up in the Lord. That is to nourish them and, and to strengthen them, to rear them. So, we are to rear, bring up our children. Proverbs 22, 6. If you train up a child the way he shall go, when he he is old, he will not depart from it. So we bring them up in the Lord. Our goal is not that they be financially successful, although there's nothing wrong with that. Our goal is not that they marry the most beautiful woman on the campus, although nothing wrong with that. Our goal is that they are conformed to the likeness of Christ. That's the goal. And your children have to be able to see that in you. That's what you take delight in, is when they know the Lord. They understand the Lord. They they know His Word. They are seeking to please Him. Your heart is genuinely warmed, and they can see your satisfaction in that. That's what it means to rear them and nurture and emanation of the Lord. Now, first of all, he says, in the discipline of the Lord. Now, the word discipline, you may be familiar with the Greek word paideia. Uh, 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 there is a book written some years ago, the paideia concept of education and so on. And what this word paideia or discipline means? It's a holistic word. It just really means training. Uh, for example, in Second Timothy three sixteen, when Paul is talking about the word of God that is useful for training in righteousness, the word training is paideia. So it's the overall training. It's not just verbal teaching. It's actually training someone how do you do that you get in the trenches with them you interact with them when they do something well you commend it when they do something wrongly you patiently show them how to do it properly and you walk them through how to amend their ways to go in this direction so it's not just giving a lecture it's actually getting in the trench with them and training them how to walk with the Lord that's what we're to do with children now I've mentioned some verses here that have to do with with physical discipline in Proverbs. And there's a lot of debate on this, of course, about corporal uh, punishment. And, you know, I'm not sure I have the answer on this. It does seem in Proverbs that Solomon says, spare the rod and spoil the child. And that when we use uh, physical discipline uh, appropriately, then we are kind of, you know, beating the foolishness out of children. But gentlemen, I I say... I think you have to be extremely careful. It seems to me that you know, after about the age of four or five, it's not very constructive to be spanking a child. Uh, and I'm just going to give you my personal opinions. I've just noticed that when they get into the elementary grades, it's actually more humiliating than it is corrective when, you, when they're corporally punished. And they're not used to being punished that way in schools anymore. It's not the common way in which we communicate correction in society. And so it's only the conservative Christians who sometimes are even wrestling with the issue. Most people have already given up on corporal punishment. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying give up on corporal punishment. I think it has a place. Certainly with a three year old, sometimes the only way you can communicate is just smack that little bottom for a moment and get, get their attention. But watch yourselves. You're big and powerful and you have testosterone, so you get angry. And it's the, the, the worst abuses are, are by fathers who are angry in their discipline, who really don't have a consistently thought out philosophy of how they're using that kind of discipline. There are many ways to discipline. And I'm just suggesting to you, you don't have to use corporal punishment, but just realize you must discipline. You must get in the trenches. You must help them make amendment of life. I remember a woman came to me, uh, in tears because her husband basically was had emotionally abandoned the household was not much use in helping with her 18 year old daughter and her 18 year old daughter had recently just made it really clear she was not going to do what her mother said well it turns out not only was this woman a member of our church the 18 year old was a member of the church she had professed her faith and uh, was a communicant member of the church so here's what i said to the mother go home and tell your daughter That, uh, you know, you really would like to be an effective mother. But obviously you've reached a point in your all's relationship where you're not able to help her make some changes in her life that are necessary. So you're just going to ask the church for help. And so when you reach one of those points where the 18-year-old doesn't want to do what her mother tells her, you're going to call the elders and two elders will come over to your house and have a chat with your daughter. She said, you all would do that? I said, yes, ma'am. I said, it just occurred to me off the top of my head, but I'm sure our elders would do that. Wouldn't you, elders? And so she said, well, that's what I'm going to do. So she goes home and she does that. I see her the next week. And I said, well, how'd it go? And she said, things are wonderful in our family. She said, my daughter didn't want that to happen <laughs> at all. And <laughs> so there are different ways to discipline your family. You realize you're under discipline. And if your family's out of order, you go to the next Authority that you can go to. Sometimes it's the school. Sometimes it's the police. But you can also use the church that way. The church has authority too. Has spiritual authority. Use it. If your kid's out of control, you just say, you know what? I probably am the one who's, who's to blame here. I probably goofed up as a parent. I'm really sorry. Uh, obviously, the problems we have are above my pay grade. So we're going to just appeal it to the elders in our church and, and let them come in and see what they can do with us. Now, it takes a humble man to do that. But you'll probably get results. Okay. Then through admonition. This word admonition, nuthateo, is a word that has to do with warning. It's a verbal word. So you have the training word, and then you have the verbal word. And it usually is used in the idea of training. And I want you to notice that, that this is so important, this child rearing, because we have 75% – this is in the little box there – 75% of American youth – professed to be Christians. Did you know that? This is from a major study 10 years ago, the National Survey of Youth and Religion. Uh, I think the Pew Foundation supported this, funded it, and it was the most extensive survey ever done in the history of the world on youth. And they found that 75% of American youth profess to be Christians. What percentage of them do you think can articulate the Christian faith and have a consistent Christian worldview? 3%. So you've got a massive number of kids who are, who are wearing the label Christian. But here's what they mean by it. It's kind of like the wallpaper on their computer. It's kind of there, but it doesn't really affect their daily life. It's, it's an add-on. It's an extracurricular. Most of the youth today see religion as a, an option. It's nice. God wants us to be good. He'll help us to be good. And if you'd like to be good, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot good with it. But I have other interests. So, but if I have time for that, I'll do it. That's the way that most youth are seeing their religion. Now, the next thing that the, the survey discovered was that the kids were perfectly consistent with the attitudes of their parents. Not what their parents say, but what their parents think. So what happens is, in religious things, you normally get not what you're saying. In the next generation, the next generation will say what you're thinking, but you don't say. In other words, they imitate what you really believe. They don't imitate what you say you'd like to believe. So what we're getting in youth culture, what we're, we're learning from our surveys, is an accurate... They, they, they very much follow their parents. What we're seeing is the kids are not overthrowing the religion of their parents. They're living it out. So, the best way to be a Christian parent is, number one, set a godly example. I know I've got minus 30 seconds, but let me just go through these quickly and give them to you. Set a godly example. You're going you're gonna to parent intuitively out of your own example. Secondly, establish family worship. You know, you need to, if you're a pastor of your home, you need to lead them in daily worship. Thirdly, have have meaningful conversations, duh. Ask questions, gentlemen, ask questions. Find out what your kids think and find out how they handle situations. Fourthly, respect your kids' boundaries and their abilities. You don't just run in and tell people what to do all the time. You ask them, "How, how did you handle that situation? What were you thinking when you handled it? How do you feel about it looking back on it now? How would you do that differently if you had it to do over again? If you'll ask questions like that that, which respect their intelligence, you'll find that they're growing faster and you'll learn a few things. Fifthly, establish and maintain a Christ-centered framework for the family. So the father negotiating with the mother needs to establish those minimal non-negotiables that are going to establish what you are as a family. Sixthly, insist on church, Sunday school, and youth group. When your kids say, do I have to go to youth group? And you say, do you think I've lost my mind? You are a 16-year-old living in a moral cesspool at your school. And I have some adults over here who are willing to work with you. And these adults believe in Jesus. And they're going to teach you more about Him. And you're asking me this ridiculous question. Do you have to go be influenced by these people? Do you think I'm the worst parent you ever met in your life? Well, of course you have to go to you. And they never asked me again after that. (laughs) Seventhly, enter enter the kids' lives regularly. Go pick her up at school and take her on a date. Enter into their lives. Get into their stuff. Uh, They'll love to have you, at least for a while. But if you've done it in the elementary years, They're much more likely to want you in their teen years. And then lastly, ask for and grant forgiveness continually. When you sin against your children, which is about every day, uh, you don't have to go asking forgiveness every day. That gets a little tiresome. But learn to ask your kids for forgiveness. Model that for them because they need to learn to ask that too. And then grant them forgiveness just as your kids will grant you. Fathers, rear your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's no more important issue of discipleship than this one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege that many of us have of being fathers and the privilege that all of us have of blessing other people who are younger or more vulnerable than we are. And in the workplace as we go to care for a number of people today by leading them in various ways, we pray that you'll make us sensitive to the needs of those around us Help us to control our anger that we do not provoke others unnecessarily to anger. And give us courage to seek your pleasure and yours alone as we lead others to do the same. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.